Most people listen to podcasts to learn something, to be entertained and to walk away feeling inspired, perhaps even educated a bit. Hello, I'm Devo and I'm one of the two hosts of our show, The Little Impolite Podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. This show is for the expansive, open-minded creative whose persistent curiosity towards integrating new information in their lives never stops. Think of it as the free thinkers toolkit for anyone that refuses to enroll in the conformity of all of those around them, instead forging their own paths with fortitude and love. It's that slightly unapologetic conversation with that new friend you just met that sort of wistfully and effortlessly pushes the conversation into spaces that you never expected. It's the deep-hearted conversations with purposeful and thoughtful individuals that have finally figured out their superpowers and are now pouring into it with gusto and love. We're delighted to host these conversations with you that lead us down the conversation well. But watch your step, because most of our guests, and of course, Lisa and I, are a little impolite. Good morning. Welcome to the Little Impolite Podcast. I'm Devo. I'm your host, and I'm still without my irascible and charismatic and unduly witted counterpart, Lisa. She is dealing with a family emergency, so I've been rocking and rolling on my own here and trying to fill in with her witty charm when and where possible and failing miserably at it. But nonetheless, today's show was anything, nothing that I expected it to be. And I thought we were going to have a conversation about the science of stuck breaking through inertia to find your path forward with Britt Frank, the is who is a trauma specialist. But like most of our podcasts, I shouldn't have been the least bit surprised. We ended up going down the metaphorical rabbit hole of self-discovery centered around a variety of issues that, in my opinion, should be more candidly discussed on a regular basis. And, and I think that people tend to have traumas in their life or stressors in their life or anxiety in their life. And instead of dealing with it head on, try to hide it in with a pill or hide it by not discussing it or hide it by shoveling it under the mattress. And if we can be more candid with each other and have conversations that, that are from a place of love and kindness and lack of judgment around other people's opinions on them. And I suffer from that as well. And, and be able to be able to live with and understand that we all have differences in how we approach things and be self-aware of our position around things and where we're failing. Then our ability to get unstuck, not only with ourselves, but with others is highly possible and achievable by just being more practical about it and less emotional about it and, and less tied to drama around it and less tied to judgments around it. And that means judgments for ourselves as well. And if there's anything I've learned in the last couple of years, because I'm going through a, I'm going through a metaphorical transformation as well. And I'm putting in a lot of time and energy into better understanding what it is that I bring to the table and who I am and how I'm suffering at certain things and underperforming at other things and where I might be wrong in my positions around stuff. And, and one of the things that I've noticed, and Britt talked about it in the show, is that we can't expect to change overnight, just like we can't expect to have success overnight or just like we can't expect that our marriage will always be perfectly bliss and harmony or that our relationships with our kids will always be 
carefree and casual and they're always going to listen to us. Nothing in our, this life worth doing well, and you've heard this before, is easy. Anything that we love doing requires effort and consistency and habitually poking and working at it. And over time, through the compound effect, over time, those small increments of changes suddenly amount to these large mass transformation. But that doesn't happen overnight, and you have to be consistent about it. It's like Jordan Peterson says, slay your baby dragons one day at a time. And when you look back a year from now, if you had spent 365 days of a year slaying one baby dragon every single day, you will look back a year from now and be like, those 365 baby dragons amounted to one giant dragon that I could never have tackled at once. But by chipping at it day after day after day, you become more accustomed to handling stress. You become more confident in achieving things and you, and you slowly start transforming who you are. So anyhow, today's conversation with Britt centers around a lot of those different things. I really encourage you to listen to it. It's a great conversation. It's a little bit over an hour. So put it in your car and like I do when I listen to podcasts and just pause and, and listen when you're driving. But do me a favor. Follow me on the Little Impolite podcast so that you get updated on new shows. Thank you for doing that in advance. If you like the show, drop us a comment. And if you love the show, drop us a review. Really appreciate that. I'm Devo. Thank you for joining us. I know that you have choices when it comes to podcasts, and I'm really excited that you chose A Little Impolite. Have a fantastic day. Good afternoon, morning, evening, wherever you are, whenever you are. This is Devo, and this is uh, The Little Impolite Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited that you have taken time out of your day to listen to this podcast. I know you have choices. In fact, there's two and a half million podcasts out there. So the fact that you're listening to this today I'm honored and hope that you get something out of it. I think the point of our podcast, and I get asked this question every week, why do I podcast? And it's really centered around the amazing connections that we get to make every single week with the people that we've brought onto the show that we have handpicked. And every single week we go down the metaphorical rabbit hole, that word is overused, but there's no better way to describe it on conversations centered around people who are doing really brilliant things in the universe to make our lives a little bit better. And today's guest is nothing short of that. It is Britt Frank. She is a, I'll tell, talk a little bit about how I came across her, but it's the rabbit hole of, of discovery of connecting with people. And I was put in touch with her through social media and loved a lot of the things that she was saying. She's an author she sent me her book, um, The Science of Stuck, which we're going to talk a little bit about. But she's a clinician. Um, she's a trauma specialist, which there sort of seems to be a theme right now in some of the last few podcasts we've had centered around trauma. Um, the book that she's wrote, written is a departure from some of the traditional modalities that you might hear from a typical therapist. And instead of viewing topics like anxiety and stress as precursors for further further needs or further medicine or something wrong with you. She's taken the approach of, of taking those pivotal functions that we all experience. And I challenge you to argue with me on that. There's no one on the planet that doesn't experience stress or anxiety at some point in their life and how to handle those and how to interpret those and deal with them so that you can live a fuller, healthier life. 
instead of just running from them and consuming pharmaceuticals that just makes you dumb and immune to the world. So we're going to bring her on and have some conversations around that and learn a little bit about who she is and who she can help and what she's doing and just have the, the, the typical conversation like we always do. So thank you again for being here. I'm going to go ahead and bring Britt in. Hey, good morning, Britt. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm excited to have the conversation. Thank you for joining us. I love that we can hear both of our dogs snorting in the back. <laughs> Did you hear? So for those of you who are wondering why we have dogs in the studio today, it's because I have a new puppy and he's very needy. And we just picked him up last night. And Britt has her lap dog sitting with her as well. So it is bring your dog to work day. <laughs> yes. So Britt, thank you for being here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And and primarily for a couple of reasons. I think selfishly, anxiety has always been something that I have dealt with. And whether epigenetically or genetically or whatever terminology you want to use to sound smart, I might have passed it on to some of my kids. And so it's a, it's a curious topic with me. And it's something that I'm personally addressing right now in my own life with, with some very specific modalities of treatment. But I thought it'd be great to have you on in a conversation centered around your book, The Science of Stuck, because like it's not just a buzzword, but finding your flow and getting unstuck and living. I hate the term living your best life, but finding a way to live, live your best life is really the purpose of here improving ourselves every single day. Right. So tell me a little bit about you and how you got into this space and some of the big things you're doing right now. So I wish I could say I got into this because I wanted to help people. And I just had this mission to make the world a better place. And that's a fun byproduct. But I really came to this work because I was a train wreck of a human being, drug addicted, trauma history. I created more trauma in my effort to escape my own trauma. Just a, like a really, just, I used to think they sent me out of the factory unfinished. I'm like, I am missing pieces. There's like something fundamentally wrong with me and what the actual, like what the hell. So. I tried lots of different things, including joining a fundamentalist cult. I tried love addiction. I tried relationships. And eventually I found my way to a trauma therapist who knew this like brain, body, nervous system thing. You know, we walk around in physical bodies, but we're not taught that. And we're not taught how they work. It's sort of like, I can't drive a stick. So if you put me in the most beautiful car in the world, it's not going anywhere. And I'm going to grind the gears. And then if I don't know that, this car requires this skill set. I'm going to either blame myself or the car. And it's neither. It's like we need to know how to drive our brains and then life works. So eventually I got better and then I got really obnoxious with all I want to do all the time is read about this shit and talk about it. And so here we are. I'm sorry. Can I swear on your podcast? Oh, yeah. This is definitely uncensored. Um, I, I, there's a couple of things that I want to go back on. You, you, and, and this is a concept I was trying to explain to, to my 12 year old the other day. And then on a hike through the mountains yesterday with some friends we had the same conversation that came up. The whole idea of these shells that we're occupying right now, it's a little bit, a little bit woo-woo, a little bit sort of spiritual and a little bit departure from the, from the normal modality of thought. But in essence, how I understand this, because you just said we're kind of living in these shells, we're just sort of these sentient beings walking around in these, these shells that we're occupying for a predetermined or undetermined amount of time. 
Is that your understanding? And what does that really actually mean? So I've heard the, you know, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And that's all cool and well and good. And I identify as a deeply spiritual person. However, we're not just these shells. These shells are biological organisms. And we have body parts and brains. And we have like nerves and fibers and organs and cells and tissues. You know, in school, you learn X plus Y equals Z. But you don't learn when your nervous system gets activated, you're going to feel this. And when your nervous system goes into collapse, you're going to feel that. And, you know, we miss out on a lot of really good stuff when we bypass the fact that we live in bodies. So I'm all about woo-woo spirituality, as long as it's not at the expense of, well, let's start with like the meat and potatoes first. Like, here's your body. Here's how it works. We can worry about which you in the metaverse exists, like after you manage things like sad and angry and things like that. So these emotions that we experience, are they just part of a, a part of a moral lesson that we have to learn to manage in order to have a greater experience? Or are they just part of the human experience and of themselves? I mean, it's impossible to not have sadness. It's not it's impossible to not have anxiety. And and the way in which we respond to that is probably, I think is what I'm hearing you say is sort of the message that I heard in your book and how we address it and how we understand it and recognize it. But these human emotions that we experience, what are they? What, why are they part of our human experience? What, what do you think that they represent? Well, if I'm hearing you accurately, you're asking me, what is the nature of our existence? Is it a moral lesson? And hell if I know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm always curious about emotions because everybody has different types of emotions. Yes, and we all have the same set. So like emotions come in a pack and we all have, there are, you know, eight basic emotions and all of the other ones are derivatives. I mean, they're very basic and, you know, anger, sadness, fear, joy, love, happiness, guilt, shame. Like those are the eight core emotions and every other feeling or emotion you describe is going to be an offset of that. And so I tell people, you know, if, if you have a spiritual question, go to a spiritual person or a spiritual leader or read or study or whatever. My work is focused on the human part of our experience. Is it a moral lesson? I don't personally believe that we're here to learn our lesson. I think for me, that's like a transference of how I used to view my parents. Like mm. my parents are here to teach me a lesson and therefore my higher power is here to teach. I don't personally believe that, but if that's your jam, have at it. Um, but we all have all of the emotions. And, you know, when I was in the very, very heavy, like spiritual bypassy religious worlds, it was not okay to have emotions. It's, you know, give your sadness over and turn it over and let it go and let go and let God. And that's all well and good. But, you know, what are emotions? Emotions are physiological markers. They're cues that have a story attached to them. So like right now you could have a tight stomach and a clenched jaw and sweaty palms. And those are feelings. Those are physiological cues. But if you have COVID, there's not going to be anything like emotional attached to it. It's like you're sick. And when you're sick, that shit happens. I might have the exact same physiology, a tight stomach, sweaty palms and a dry mouth. And it might be I'm anxious and nervous because I'm on your podcast. And so feelings are just those body cues. Emotions are when we attach a story or meaning to those body cues. Thank you for that explanation. I wasn't trying to get spiritual with you. I, I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to understand how. It's all good. I'm trying to understand how all of us have these, how and why we all have these very specific emotions and, and how everybody deals with them in a different response mechanism. I might deal with stress better than you or probably most likely not. 
you deal with stress and anxiety better than I do because you've taken the time to understand its triggers and, and how it works. But if I'm not putting that work in, what am I, I'm setting myself up for a predetermined amount of failure at some point because it's just going to continue to build upon itself. Well, yeah. I guess, right? Is that, was that a fair statement? Yeah, not failure, at least suffering, you know? Yeah. And for the record, I go to therapy and I don't manage my own personal stuff any better than anybody else. I have to do a lot of work on it. But people think if you don't have a, quote, mental illness, if you don't have a diagnosis, then this whole body of wellness work is it doesn't count. It's not for you. And it's like, if you have a brain, that means you have emotions and your question of how and why, I have no idea why we're designed with these emotions. I hell if I know why, but I, I do know how. And because people way smarter than me have figured out the how and the mechanism and what's happening in our brain. And so knowing the how makes life a lot easier. It's like having a coach, you know, it's like, you don't need a coach to you know, fix a toilet or learn how to run or how to ski. But if you have information from people who've studied it, life just works better. So yeah. like, you know, yeah. I love that you say that because you say that a couple of times in your book. And I was listening to some other stuff around you on some different uh, podcasts that you've shown up on. And you talk a lot about that, that you've, you've gathered all this information. So you've done the research for us. You've gathered the, an accumulated knowledge from previous doctors, previous therapists, and you've aggregated it in your book. So I, I love that you sort of, it's, I hate the word cliff notes, but it's sort of like a cliff notes from version of, which is it's actually really good because it's not written in like pseudoscience language, which is something. Oh, yeah. really and I love that you know what cliff notes are. I'm like, I feel really old now because I have clients that are like, what's that? I'm like, oh crap, I have reached old age, but it is, it's a cliff notes guide. Or I like to say it's, you know, my book's driver's ed for the brain. You know, you don't need to speak psychobabble nonsense to understand some very basic fundamentals and knowing these things makes our lives where, you know, it's not, I, I'm with you, like live your best life is sort of like, meh, but it's not live your best life. It's live a, you know, a life where you get to make choices versus pinging around reacting to things all the time and not knowing why. Like you're not broken, you're not lazy, you're not crazy. There's no such thing as a crazy person. You know, there's information and if we have it, our lives work better. I really love that because a lot of people, most people, and I, there's an argument to be made that a large number of people that's very self-evident over the last two and a half years are just sort of ping pong balls in a machine getting bounced around in whatever direction they're told to go or conditionally trained to go, they go. So what is it that makes somebody have the ability to step outside of that box? It's really curiosity and observation. If you're asking what's the, what's the, the tool, what's the skill that enables us to stop the reactivity? And one, it's knowing I'm in reactivity. A lot of people are highly reactive ping pong balls and they think they're in charge. I used to be one of those people. Like, I've got this covered. I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here. It's like, you're really not. And if you, you know, people have said to me, well, how do I know if I'm in reactivity? I'm like, look at your relationship with food, sex, sleep, and other people. How's that? And money. How's that going? And again, assuming you're not actually, my disclaimer is if you're living in like the Ukraine, that's going to be different information. And this conversation is not about that. Assuming that you're not under oppression or, you know, some sort of systemic racism thing where you don't have access to the things that you need or whatever, you know, how's life working for you? Assuming you have choices and your relationship with food, sex, money, and other people isn't working, I would surmise that perhaps this information might be useful. Those curious people, though, and this is a self-observation, because I'm a curious person, and not that I'm enlightened or awake. I hate all those silly terms. I'm just, I am what I am. I'm 
I do question everything. I've always questioned everything. And, but what I've discovered about myself in the last few years is I continue to question things. The, and I'm just going to use the word stressors and trauma because I don't know how else to label them. The stressors and trauma that I experience after I uncover some other narrative that I'm questioning, whether about myself or about life, they not only perpetuate, but they seem to get more difficult in some ways. And I don't mean more difficult, like insurmountable. It's almost like, and I don't play video games, but I'm familiar with the concept. And I never was allowed to play video games as a kid. You and I have very similar upbringings, by the way. We should talk a little bit about that. Um, I was not allowed to play video games or listen to rock music or watch TV or that sort of stuff. And I, and I sort of, my dad was a psychopath, but I sort of understand some of his reasoning to this day, which is actually a blessing in disguise. But when you play video games, you have these layers, right? Or these levels. And each level, it gets a little bit harder, right? But as it gets harder, your learning curve gets shorter because you get better. So that's what I'm trying to explain. As we learn and become more aware, self-aware, or more evolved, if you will, the levels never stop. Like They just keep getting a little bit more puzzling. Would you agree with that? Yes and no. So yes, that as we, you know, level up and we continue on playing these games of our lives, do we get more skill? Yes. Does the learning curve shorten? Sure. But my question for you is, do you see life as a series of obstacles that like you're needing to jump over and then eventually you level up and reach the end with, you know, hurrah and the trophy and some goal is, and again, that's, that's a worldview you can look at. Does life get harder? I think there's a, a degree in which life gets really crappy the more you know, and then there's a pivot point at which point eventually it stops being, again, assuming you have choices and relative safety and access, there's a point at which you're no longer led by your injury. Like I went through a decade of just analysis insanity where my, there's no such thing as a crazy person. But when I say insanity, I just mean, oh my God, I'm reckoning with this is who I am and this is my childhood and this is my family. But eventually the bomb stops going off. And then, you know, then you have the skill set to design your life instead of reacting and living in defaults. So I don't think it's just a constant ever, you know, shifting series of challenges that continue to make our lives more and more difficult. I think this work has a curve where it sucks, it sucks, it sucks, and then it gets better. I don't necessarily think difficult or harder. I would say more complex, Mm. But, but the complexity of it is only because you're further equipped to handle greater complexity. Does that make sense? Yes, and I agree with that. So it's almost like it's, so. sorry, we're going a little bit outside the curve of where you normally talk, but it's almost like it's set up that way on purpose, like a simulation program. And, And in order for us to continue to grow and evolve, we have to be faced with more complex puzzles, if you will. I agree with that. I I love where this conversation has sort of like, derailed into because this is my favorite stuff to talk about. I'm happy to talk about anxiety and trauma. But, oh, we are. Don't worry. We're going to get back to <laughs> But, you know, Carl Sagan, I think the more complex you realize, and I agree with you, the more complexity is revealed, the more we value the simplistic. Mm-hmm. And Carl Sagan talked about, you know, astronomy is a humbling, and I'm quoting him directly, astronomy is a humbling and character building experience. And Contact is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's like, the more you realize how complex and how nuanced and how just 
baffling and bizarre this entire experience is, the more we value the small things like simple connections, like a puppy sitting on my lap, like snoring. And so I think it's it's a duality of the more complex we get, the more simple, the more we're happy with the simple things. And that's useful. So, yeah. So where I was going with that rabbit hole for a minute is as things get more complex, we have to be equipped to handle those. So as we move through the levels of our video game or simulation, if we're not handling the binary things like stress and anxiety and learning to get unstuck initially, it keeps us at a level until we've learned that lesson or we sort of just end up repressing ourselves to some extent. That's how I, that's how I see it. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, we certainly stay stuck. You know, some people view that stuck as you haven't learned your lesson. It's just like you can view it like that, which is a morality based approach or just you don't have the skill set to handle what's coming at you. And so instead of spinning around and what's wrong with me and why and how it's like you don't have the skill, let's teach you the skill. So, you know, you can level up or move forward or at the very least, however you conceptualize it, the skill will help you to like do more things and to drive the car of your mind and to make more choices. You know, the more information you have, the more choices you have. And that's important instead of reactivity. Yeah, I I believe we're saying the same thing. You just sounded more eloquent when you said it. So you talk about mental health not being a mental process that it's a physical process, like things like laziness and procrastination and unmotivation and sitting on your ass watching countless hours of Netflix. Those are part of a result of a survival, like a fight or flight physiology. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Yeah. And people get so pissed off at me when I say that. I'm like, listen, I am a type A Enneagram 3 New York Jew. I am a big advocate of get off your butt and do the things. Like I skew more towards the, I'm going to burn myself out, but I certainly have my lay on the couch, binge watching the thing all day, multiple days. So I'm not saying that the behavior is justifiable, but I am saying if you're going to say that someone is lazy or unmotivated, using those terms is one, it's inaccurate. And two, it's shamey. And if we're wanting to change a behavior, we need to accurately describe the behavior. I'm not saying it's good to lay on the couch. I am saying there's a reason you're laying on the couch. And if you say, I'm just lazy, it's sort of like, okay, well, there's nowhere to go from there. The the reason being part of your survival physiology, that's where you're going with that? Yes. Yeah. Like, and again, I shouldn't, why am I in survival physiology? I'm perfectly safe. Well, that's great. But your brain speaks a whole different language when it comes to survival. Fight, flight, and freeze is not subject to logic. And so if your brain goes into freeze, you're going to feel like you're on the couch. If your brain goes into fight, you're going to be like picking fights with internet people or your spouse. And if your brain goes into flight, you're going to be doom scrolling all night and you're going to be like, go, 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 go and not know why. But fight, flight, freeze is a thing. It's a thing that we do. And when we call it laziness or lack of motivation, we miss out on the solutions. So when we're in the fight mode and we're triggered by things what's actually going on physiologically with our bodies when when we're driving down the road and somebody cuts us off and gives us the finger and we have a choice to be like you're an idiot whatever just go about your way or we could you know chase them down i'm not speaking from personal experience by the way <laughs> I'm just saying because i've observed it i observed a, i observed a car chase yesterday between two cars and going really fast speeds chasing each other one apparently had pissed the other off and I don't know really what was going on, but I saw them pulling up to each other and like trying to almost hit each other. And I'm like, first of all, you're causing chaos for the rest of us on the road, you idiots. And second of all, my second thought was, what was it that was so heinous that made the first one do whatever he did 
But the second one to get triggered as badly as he was to end up going back and forth for that time. What is physiologically going on when someone gets triggered like that? And so, you know, at its simplest for, and again, it's not justifying, it's just explaining. If someone cuts you off on the road and you go into an inexplicable, completely incongruent rage and you're trying to run them off the road, it's because your brain thinks that that person is attacking you. You know, from like a biological evolutionary standpoint, your brain now thinks that that person is a lion about to eat you and you must fight to the, I mean, Anyone who's ever had a fight with a significant other knows there's a point at which you stop seeing them and now they become your mortal enemy and you must defend and protect at all costs. And that's, you know, that's fight physiology. Again, it doesn't excuse it, but it helps to know if your reaction is up here and the situation is down here, that's because your brain is in survival physiology. Why does that happen? Like you said, it could be epigenetics. It could be genetics. It could be childhood. It could be a bajillion. It could be your body chemistry. It doesn't matter. We just need to know that our reactivity is a survival response and there are things we can do with it. doesn't mean it's okay to go into fight. It just means this is what's happening and we don't know why. We don't need to know why, but we do need to know what and how to get out of it. So by understanding the what and the how of what's going on physiologically with our body, we're better equipped, like the levels of our ascension, if you will, to handle it. Is that, is that what I'm hearing you saying? And by handling it, we're doing what? We're doing self-therapy, self-healing. We're doing, we're learning habits to sort of calm ourselves like breath exercises. Where, where are you going with that? If, if Let's just pretend it's me and it's not. But let's just pretend it's me. I have to, I have to put that disclaimer out there. But let's just pretend it's me and I'm like, just got cut up on the road or my partner triggers me and says something. And it's like, no. And then we start arguing. What can I do in that moment by becoming more self-aware about the what and the how so that I can address it so that I don't respond that way. Well, I mean, if you know that your brain has a fight, flight, freeze response and you feel yourself going into highly reactive mode, then if you're observing that, then you're not flooded by it. Because when you're fully in fight physiology, your logic is sort of offline. It's it's not available to you. And then you might do something or say something really stupid and really suboptimal. If you're aware of these things, then when your partner triggers the crap out of you, you have the wherewithal to go, okay, hang on a second something is getting triggered here. And sometimes we know the triggers, sometimes we don't. So like, you know, if I hear my husband on a work call and he's angry, I might have a fear trigger because I've been in really bad relationships where there was intimate partner violence. So hearing an elevated male voice is going to make my heart pound and my palms sweat. And if I went into fight and flight, I would either run away, I would shut down, or I would just like yell at him. But if I know that that's a trigger, even if I didn't know why I could go, okay, I'm being triggered here. There's something that's making me feel unsafe. And so instead of reacting, I could take a pause, step back and go, what are my choices here for helping my brain feel more safe? And then we can decide what to do next again versus living in this reactive state all day, every day, which feels awful and it feels powerless. And that's why so many people get so angry because they feel not in charge of their own bodies and their own minds and their own lives. So like knowing this information makes your relationships better. It makes you a, makes you a responder rather than a reactor. So in your book, the science of stuck breaking through inertia to find your path forward, you give real credible tips on how to manage that. What and the how. So I want to physically ask you in in the situation of the car cutting me off or an argument triggering some sort of an emotional response from me, 
what's going on with me? I'm, I'm having some sort of physiological anxiety attack of my own from past trauma. And then I'm using that to placate the situation that's going on now. And I'm looking like they're the same thing. I'm transposing the two. How can I address those? Like, what are some physical things that I can do to get to the front of that and not allow it to over, overwhelm me? Well, for you, if you're in your car and you're having that reaction, the first thing to say is say out loud, I am safe. They are not attacking me. That person doesn't know me. Like actually say it out loud is the first intervention because hearing your vocal cords vibrate is going to slow down your fight, flight, freeze response. Because think about it, if you were being attacked by a lion, you're not going to be like if there was a lion in the back of my office. There's a reason when we get terrified, we lose our ability to speak. So if you're in your car, actually say out loud, I am safe. That person is not attacking me. And then turn on the radio and sing or stick your head out the window or, you know, little kind again, these are what's called somatic interventions, mm -hmm. just to use the sensory inputs available to you. If your dog is in the car with you, reach over and pet his head and do anything that's available. So since, you know, from a sensory point of view, you can help your brain, what's called downregulate out of that. Ah, they're out to get me kind of thing. In the, in the beginning of Brit's life, you had gone through a lot of trauma. So this, you know, the journeys that you've gone along have, have sort of helped you be in the position that you are. Do you look back at some of the stuff that you've gone through and say, there's no way I would be the woman that I am today with the knowledge that I have today had I not gone through all of those traumas to begin with? So it's almost like having trauma is part of our it's part of a bedrock for us to, to be able to evolve and understand where we are in the first place. And there's some really interesting research about, you know, the power of regret. Daniel Pink wrote a book about that. And so, you know, deciding whether or not regret is a thing or guilt and shame is a thing or, you know, is trauma there to make us better people? Again, that's sort of a philosophical question. I'll answer the question for me personally. They say this in the 12-step rooms in you know recovery, that you'll neither regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Some people have regrets and that's totally fine. Regrets can be useful. For me personally, I wouldn't want to repeat one, one second of my history, but I regret none of it because I like where I am now. Would I wish my story on anyone? No. Do I want to go back and redo things? Absolutely not. But I wouldn't trade it. If you put me in a room with 10 people and we all put our stories in the center and I had the ability to trade out my history, I wouldn't do it. Because it's, it's created who you are today. It's given you the knowledge and armed you with the information to be able to not only help yourself, but help others, right? I mean, there's an argument to be made right or wrong, there's an argument to be made that had you not experienced any of those traumas or hardships, you might not have learned whatever lessons you needed to learn in order to be who you are today, correct? That's true for me, you know, and I think it's true for me as well. I don't think trauma is given to us to make us better. I do think shit happens. And since the shit's happened anyway, you know, what are our choices for what we can do with it now that it's happened. And for me, I've chosen to do this. And for you, you've chosen to do your work. And I'm very happy where I'm sitting. And this is the path it took to get me here. So, okay, fine. So I thank you for that answer. And I'm in complete agreement with you. And before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the traumas that you, because you're very candid about it. Some of the stuff that you went through. Tell me a little bit about, you know, 18 year old Brit and where you were at that point in time and some of the stuff that you're going through, because you have a fascinating story. And I, 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 just, I think it's worth sharing so that people can understand who listen to this podcast that not only have you put in the work, but you, you walked the walk that you're, that you're decrying as the very reason that you're trying to solve. You're not just somebody who went to got an online certification and say, Hey, I'm a coach. And I'm a therapist. Now follow me. Like you've went through some real bullshit and you've come out on the other side 
considerably armed and, and dangerous with better information to help people, right? So if I may, just talk a little bit about 18-year-old Brit, or if it goes even younger than that, some of the stories and trauma and bullshit that you've gone through. Oh, so much bullshit. I tell people now I use my powers for good instead of for evil. I was such a good manipulator. I was, I learned that from a very early age, like little toddler me figured out how to manipulate the people around her because it was the only way to survive. You know, if you're not having your needs met as a child, you're going to adapt in a variety of less than optimal ways. 18 year old me. Oh, I have so much compassion for my 18 year old self. She made such a mess of things. We've cleaned it up. But at 18, I went to Duke University. And so I go from, you know, my little Long Island world to this ridiculous, super my neck of the woods. From Long Island? No, no, Duke. I'm in Charlotte. So you're in Charlotte. You went to Raleigh. Yeah. 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 And Durham. And I was so out of my element there. I'm like, these are like the shiniest, cleanest, wealthiest, most proper bred people. Like what the actual hell is happening? I have to stop, I have to stop you there because I knew this about you. But I went to Trinity, which is an Ivy League school in Connecticut. And I had the exact same observation. <laughs> I, I, I went to school in Pueblo, Colorado and in, in, in California. And I grew up in one of the poorest towns with like nothing but gangsters and hydraulic bumping cars and this white boy on a scholarship to an Ivy League school. And I show up and people are driving Range Rovers around campus. And I'm like, where the fuck am I? Like truly, like, I remember one of my hallmates, and this is at 18 years old. She, cause I smoked cigarettes, but like I'm from Long Island. So I smoked parliaments and she gets out these mother of pearl Cartier cigarettes, apparently in the late nineties, Cartier oh cigarettes. And she had this really gorgeous, like cigarette holder and she had her pearls and her cardigan. I'm like, ah, what the, f-? like, I don't know how to do this like at all. And so, I mean, granted that was like a small I probably, if I had more skills, could have seen more things. But do you stick out like a sore thumb? Um, I like to think that I blended, but I really didn't. I did not. I was stuck out like a sore thumb. <laughs> it was not a good look at all. Um, so what did I do? I moved to LA and became a druggie because I I can party. And, you know, the academic piece, that wasn't tricky for me. I was always able to pull grades and, you know, Ritalin and cocaine will make it very easy to stay up all night and pull good grades. So, Which are readily available on any college campus, by the way. I had never seen as many drugs as when I went to a rich kid school, like not just drugs, but they, I remember when I would buy acid from a friend of mine and he had it in this really beautiful, like leather bound file thing. And each one was labeled with the country of origin and the side of, it's like, where are we? Like, what is this crazy planet? I'm the same as you. The only thing I had ever seen was cannabis. So that was relatively available, even though I never tried it and booze, like people drank beer. And when I went to college, it was the same observation. Not the first party I ever went to, there was like a, a, a buffet of options from LSD on or little tabs on paper to yeah. cannabis, but heroin, cocaine. I'm like, I have never even seen this stuff except for even in movies that I've rarely ever watched. And people were just like casually passing it around. I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. And not why I'm in college. Like, I always had this idea that it was something bigger and better and like this serene atmosphere of like really cream of the crop people who are here to pursue intellect and become smarter. It's a fucking free party for four years that daddy and mommy are paying for, for the most majority of people that I engaged with. 
it's insane. And now, you know, it's high school kids that, you know, I didn't go to a private school, but I see a lot of private school teenagers and it's the same thing, but I didn't see, I'm with you. I didn't see it till college and it blew my mind. I'm like, who are these people? Like what the, I wish in my current, like 42 year old sensibility, I could go back and take those classes. Cause I, it's, it's, I don't regret it, but it's like, I did have four years of the most amazing research and the most brilliant professors available to me. And I did a lot of cocaine and a lot of ecstasy and, you know, the occasional acid trip, but you know, that was 18 year old Brit was like, I can't be a well-bred proper rich kid, but I can party. And I was good at that. I knew how to do that. That's easy enough. You take enough drugs, everyone's equal. So that's what I did. And then I moved to LA and did that for a while. Eventually I finished up at Duke, but by then it was such a shit show. Like relationship, when you do drugs and you have party friends, there's a lot of relational insanity that comes along with that. And so I would ping pong from drug addiction to love addiction and from love addiction to sex addiction back to drug addiction to love addiction. And I would sort of bebop around all three of those for a while. So you went from um, Raleigh or Durham at Duke, and then you moved out to LA. And, and at, at what point did you start to realize that you were stuck and you needed to start doing something about this? What, what was there? Was it a, a light bulb epiphany moment? Or was it sort of like a slow, gradual buildup where you're like, I'm going nowhere with my life. I'm no, nothing but trauma after trauma. Tell me a little bit about that sort of space and where you got to there. Well, if you had asked me at 22, I would have said, I don't have any trauma. Yeah. I would have said everything was fine. Like I was never assaulted. My parents are still married. I always had food on the table. I don't have trauma. What are you talking about? Like, you know, I'm just a crazy girl. I have no trauma. Um, so it, fortunately, I had some Jesus people, some evangelical fundamentalists come at me during a time where I was really vulnerable. And this idea of if you do this, read this, study this, wear this, eat this, whatever, you will be and you will be good and we will accept you. So I moved to Missouri and I felt like some good conditional love. Super conditional, super brainwashed. I know technically we're not brainwashed. They're speaking to wounds, but oh my God, here's an opportunity for me to like bypass all of the inner work of dealing with my shit. And I just like quote this Bible passage and walk around doing this, saying oh this, God. and I'm good to go. Hell yes, sign me up. I wish Lisa was here with us right now because she spent 30 years in the Mormon church. Ooh, Lisa. I know, but she's broken free. So like you, she's found her way out. But some of the stories she told me sounds very similar to yours. That's why it'd be wonderful if she could, you guys could swap stories. She's got some doozies, man. <laughs> I mean, I'll carry on. Sorry. You know, like, the, and again, I tell people not all cults are Nexium or Jonestown. You know, you don't always die as a result of being part of a cult, but part of you does. And it's incredibly appealing. Like this idea of instant connection, instant belongingness. All of a sudden I went from feeling all alone to I have brothers and sisters, my moms and dads, and I show up at this thing and I'm welcomed with open arms. But the problem with that is as soon as you start to create any type of critical thinking, you're shunned. As, you know, but pause so there for a second. That's an interesting juxtaposition because no matter how free thinker you are, no matter how, how outside the box you are, no matter how critical or unique you are, at the core of who we are as humans, we still need to belong to something. We still need to have those connections, those conversations, some meaning, some depth. And that only comes from other humans. You can't get that anywhere else. I suppose you could get it from your own books, but 
Like we all need touch. We all need conversation. We all need engagement. We all need some sense of validation. So no matter who you are, you still have to have that in your life, right? And, right. And- and the caveat is, but not at all costs. I wish someone had told me, yes, belonging, yes, community, yes, connection, yes, physical touch, but not at any cost. Like, Yeah, yeah. but if you can't find that cult to join and you haven't been able to find a peer of networks that you can engage with people, how do some people find those people? For me, po- podcasting is part of that for me. Uh, truthfully, let's just, I'm being transparent. Being able to have this platform to meet and have conversations with people like you and the other score of people, it's part of my way of connecting and staying in touch with humans who are much brighter, much smarter, and much more intelligent than me so that I can just feel like I'm doing something, part of something, and can stay connected to some fabric, some weave. And it's not a conditional relationship for me. So like, you don't have to be here. You're here of your own volition, right? I'm not paying you. So it kind of feels good. So thank you. I love the, uh, and you know, for people who say, I feel so lonely and disconnected, I hear you, but especially in this like online COVID world that we are in online friends count. Like I get just as much out of this as you do. Like this will fill my tank. I will, I'm not a social person. I'm an introvert. I, I, I need, we need connection, but after this, I'm good to go as far as socially engaging for a little bit. Yeah. I'm the same as you. I'm the same as you. Right. So this is good. Online friends counts. And when people are like, no, it like yes it does you can create just as much significance and connection some of my best friends are people that i've met on instagram that i've just met for the first time within the last year i i've launched a mastermind in the last six months and every member in that mastermind came from this podcast shut up i want an invite to your next one would you be interested (laughs) yes absolutely we have the most brilliant people that have joined this group and it's just wonderful. We can talk about it offline if that's something you're interested in. I've had, uh, anyway, keep For going. sure. Well, all that so to back say- Back to your cult and your conditional love. Well, there's no excuse for disconnection. And again, and I have incredible compassion on people who are lonely and who feel isolated. But the I can't find connection is not accurate. That's not truthful. That's not honest. I'm scared of connection because I don't want to be rejected. Fine, we can work with that. I don't want to you know, risk feeling like I don't belong. Fine, we can deal with that. But don't sit there and say to me, there's just no way for me to feel connected because that's bullshit. So like, which again, no, no shame. If you don't want to do it, don't. But don't say it's because you can't because that's just not true yeah that, that so that goes back to your that goes back to your physiological thing where it's not a disease it's something that we're not stuck we have the choice to sort of figure out why and how we're stuck and what to do about it Right. And the not a disease thing, it's it's important to me as a clinician to be really responsible with this. I'm not anti-psych meds. I am anti the over-medication of people. I take psych meds. I've taken psych meds for 15 years and I'll probably stay on them forever. If meds work for you, use them. But like, it's not the be all end all. It's not the solution. It's sort of like you're wearing glasses right now. Like your glasses aren't a medication. They're just a tool to help your vision. I, I think wish- my glasses have made my vision worse, by the way. <laughs> I'm not joking. I think I, I think I see worse after a year of wearing glasses. And maybe that's just a, the, the anomaly of growing older. But I don't, they help me see when in the moment when I'm, need, when I'm needing to see something. But my vision has gotten worse by wearing them. 
And that can be true with meds too. There are a lot of meds that make your situation worse. But all that to say that medications are one tool on a very large buffet table of tools. They're not the be all end all. If you don't want them, talk to your doctor. And if you're on them, don't stop taking them just because we're just because anxiety isn't a disease doesn't mean that there aren't sometimes really important reasons to be medically stabilized. So that's that's my disclaimer. So you said that you are still taking psychomeds. Yeah, I take antidepressants. Well, uh-huh. why, Britt, if you do all this trauma healing? Because they help my brain go this way instead of this way. It's not that I do therapy. I take psych meds. I do exercise. I eat vegetables. I do all of the things because for me personally, I'm not saying everyone needs meds. For me personally, they help. You know, I have a very wild history of mental illness stuff in my family on both sides as far as the eye can see. And for me, I was fortunate that I found a medication after a lot of trial and error that is useful. So I take them. Have you ever dabbled in psychedelics or anything like that, like cognitive psychedelic treatment and therapies that are like formerly cognitively prescribed for you? Aaron. I love that you brought that up. Psychedelic psychotherapy is so like it's so cool what people are. I don't do it personally because I've had enough drugs, and I just for me personally, I don't feel like I have internal consent to put more uh, mind altering drugs in my system because there's no way to revoke consent. If I take MDMA, I'm on MDMA until it wears off. If I take psilocybin, I'm and for me personally, I need to be able to revoke consent. So when they make Narcan for psychedelics, where if I change my mind, you can make it stop, I'm in. But psychedelic psychotherapy is brilliant and it's amazing. And Rick Doblin, who runs MAPS, which is the Psychedelic Psychotherapy Association, it's amazing. I am a staunch advocate for everybody else who wants it to do it. I just don't do it personally. So let me, can I keep talking about this for a minute because I find it fascinating. I don't know the I don't know the term you just used, but the the it, the automatic sorry the autonomous ability to turn that off that psychedelic. What's that term you used? Um, revoking consent. Revoking, but you said something else. What did I it was, say? It was one word. I don't know. I was trying to understand. Narcan is what they give you if you're having an opiate overdose. Okay, okay, that's what it was. So, yeah. do you not do you not think that be, because you were blindly unaware when you took the drugs at 18. So your scope and your reasoning behind them were not the same as cognitively using them for therapy. Do you not think that you'd be able to have a different derivative or result if you were more focused by doing that sort of treatment now, as opposed to 18 years old? It's such a good question. I mean, at 18, your brain's not even grown. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about this with a lot of friends in the psychedelic therapy sort of arena. Would it be a useful thing for me? Probably. Like, would I probably have really cool insights? And because I've done so much trauma work, not have a terrible experience? Probably. I don't, I can get to the places that I want to go to in my inner space without it. So for me personally, I don't feel like it's would be a useful or necessary add on, you know, it does take time and it takes money and it takes energy and it takes resources. And if you're not in a place where you have it available, I live in the Midwest, I would have to travel. And so right now it's just not a priority, even though it's really freaking cool. And it would be like, it's on, it's not off the list. It's just not on the top of my list right now. Fair enough. Okay. Thank you for your candor and honesty. I appreciate it. I was just curious. It, I'd rather go something than, you know, spend five grand on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Like I'd much yeah. rather go to Costa Rica and get on a surfboard. That sounds more fun. <laughs> I just came back from Costa Rica. It's so beautiful there. I went surfing for the first time this year and oh my God, that's a, that's a drug I am signing up for. 
Yes, Just please. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All right. So I want to go back to you. Damn it. We're already running out of time. Um, I want to go back to you. So you've gotten into the, the cult. Mm-hmm. Fast track me through this process and until and you reach the point of I've gone too far. I'm yeah. fucking up my life. Okay, so how did Brit? How did you get out of the cult? Well, I got involved in a relationship with someone in the cult who left the cult and became a meth addict, and so I became a meth addict because I just do what I'm told and I go where. So I don't have to be a fully autonomous human. It's like you want me to do meth, no problem. I'll smoke meth. You smoke meth long enough, it doesn't take very long for the walls to come tumbling down and for you to come to the end of like, okay, this really, I'm not going to survive this story if I don't find a a way to like change this. So for me, it became a survive or die, like figure it out or die kind of thing. So I did. And yay. I don't regret that either. Cause you know, I know what shadow people are and all the insanity that comes with that particular drug and the shame and the stigma. I can hold space for it. Cause been there, done that, have the t-shirt. Yay. <laughs> so you went back to school to mm-hmm. become a therapist, to do the stuff that you're doing now at that point. Yeah, after I well, not at that point, but you know, I I got a degree of health, a small degree of health. And then in my mid 30s, I pivoted careers and went back to school and became a therapist. And, you know, I don't do drugs anymore. I'm not abstinent. I don't believe that sobriety equals abstinence. For some people, it does not for everybody. But for me, you know, meth was the you know, path out of cult life that brought me to the end of my road. I got better, went back to school, became a therapist. And here we are. You talk about so you so you're in the you're in your new field you're in your your new space where you're helping people. You talk about a lot about transformations are possible with adjustments. That's sort of something I hear you say in a lot of different things that I read in your book and then in podcasts that I listen to about you and on your social media you talk about it. What are some of the key adjustments that one can make for transformations? What do you mean by that? And what are some of the things that one can do? Well, the first thing is those little small micro steps, those, those add up very quickly. They compound very rapidly. So as fast as you are to dismiss the, well, yeah, I smoked 10 cigarettes today instead of 20, but it's not like I quit. It's like, yes, but you're 10 cigarettes down from where you were. So yay, let's celebrate. So it's not just a sentimental woo woo celebrate yourself. It's like, and if you don't celebrate your little wins, you're not going to create the momentum you need to get to the things you actually want. So those micro shifts forward, they matter. Even if you adjust one thing in your day, you know, even if it's you drive a different road to work. Okay, great. That's something different. Your brain is now a little confused. Fantastic. When our brains are confused, we have room for change. And so the second thing is, if you're wanting to make transformational change, be willing to get honest with yourself. And that is not an easy sell. And that's not an easy thing to do. But when you are willing to be honest with yourself about yourself, then a really cool things become possible. When you become honest with yourself, you start to learn things that you didn't know about yourself as well, which is interesting. If if you're willing to sort of say, you know, I, I am kind of fucking up or I am responsible for that. That's another thing. Responsibility is one of the characteristics that I've noticed. And this is not a denigration of anyone. I don't care how old you are. But one of the things I've noticed, and I'm sorry, I'm going off tangent here for a second, but responsibility and, and the sense of owning what you do and why you do it and your role in it. And, and I have two teenage daughters and I, and I, and I noticed that in a lot of their friends that come over, there's always sort of like a blame game going on around everything. And every time there's drama, it's always like, and so I tell my kids, I'm like, well, what was your role in it? It wasn't me, dad. It was like, I'm like, but where were you in that space when that argument occurred or when that accident happened or whatever it was, what was your role in it? And when they actually stop to think about it, they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> that makes me happy that some teenage girls are getting the proper information because I lived as a perpetual 16 year old. I was 16 when I was 18, when I was 20, when I was 25, when I was 28. I didn't want to take responsibility. I wanted someone to come and save me and rescue me and fix me. And it was your fault. And taking responsibility feels really gross when you're doing it, but it's also where all your power is. Because when you can own your responsibility, that's when you have power to make changes. So I agree with you. you I agree with you. I, I think personal responsibility is probably one of the keystone human emotions or human elements that if you don't have it, you're going to be lost for a long time. So having that sense of responsibility to understand around your self-awareness that there is something that you can do that, or there is something that you're doing to cause the problems that you're having in the first place. Like you had a choice to move in with meth head, right? You had a choice to not join the cult, right? You had a choice to not even go to Duke, for example, right? Some people may, might not have choices, but for the most part, we, all, we always have a choice, right? We have a choice. Even if we don't have a choice because we're being forced to do something, we do have a choice to find a way not to be forced. So anyway, that was sort of like a round table. But um, having that sense of personal responsibility to recognize that there is something you're doing wrong is, is the first step. Would you, would you agree? Absolutely. And again, just as the disclaimer, there are some cases for some people in some situations where the choices are legitimately completely absent. Those are not the people and situations to which we refer. But for me, it was like, it's nuanced, right? It's like, did I deserve to have the things that happened to me happen to me? It's like, well, you chose to live with that person and you chose to do that drug. Therefore, you deserve to be sexually assaulted. It's like, no, it's like, we don't want to be in this binary black or white either or thinking. It's like, yes, I made choices and legitimately things happened to me that I didn't ask for and that I didn't deserve. And I get to take personal responsibility and I get to be sad that bad things happened. And, and, and. So having this and consciousness where it's not, well, you deserved it, therefore. It's like, no, I didn't. And, that happened and I made choices and we need to be nuanced with our stuff and not try to make it so simplistic and reductionist. We need to be able to tolerate ambiguity and context and nuance or we're not going to get better. Wow. I love that. The nuances, the subtleties and nuances. I'm off topic, but my daughter asked me yesterday on the drive back from the mountains, what was my, my opinion about abortion since it's front and center in everyone's media game right now. And I told her, I said, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not a black and white, or and I said, it's not a binary response, that there are a lot of extenuating circumstances that go into this. My first response is that if it is a black and white situation, it should always be the woman's choice, in my opinion. You know, knowing that there is a, there is a life on, on the line, but for mostly men in a, in a, in a role to make up a law that prescribes to women telling women how they have to live their lives and, and, and manage their bodies doesn't seem to make much sense to me because a, you've never been pregnant nor will you ever be pregnant. But I think it's not a black and white situation either, because I do know people who have had multiple abortions because they live their life recklessly. So I said that to her and I'm just curious off the cuff, knowing what you know about life and given the experiences that you've had, if your daughter, do you have children? I do not. If your daughter, 16 years old, came to you and said, Dad, what's your opinion on abortion? What would you say about it? So do you watch The West Wing or have you seen the... I don't watch TV. That is awesome. Okay, so I watch the same show every day over and over for 10 years. I watch The West Wing every single day. And there's this amazing... Why? 
because I know the people, I know the characters, I know the storylines, nothing crazy happens. And I take a lot of comfort. My nervous system is settled and soothed by watching the same shit over and over and over again every single day. Promise you I'm not alone on that. So that's just a thing I do. But there's a whole debate about abortion and this idea of legislating morality. And Uh I'm pro, I mean, I'm staunchly pro-choice, but what they said in it, I actually agree with. It's that abortion's a tragedy. It should be safe. It should be legal. It should be every woman's choice. And it would be nice if there was less of it, if we had the ability to resource young women and give them other choices and give them more information and tell them about trauma so that, you know, it's again, it's nuanced. It's not that you're bad for having an abortion. Like, good God, you know, it's that, would it be nice if there was less of it? Probably for the women too. I mean, having people who are like, oh, they're just having an abortion to erase. They haven't gone through it. Like it is a painful, literal gut wrenching emotional. It is awful. So someone who's like, well, that's just a get out of jail free card. Yeah. You go through one and then tell me that that's what it is. You know, I completely agree. When you said subtleties and nuances, it, it triggered what I said to her. I said, it's very circumstantial because every woman who is going through that predicament or that decision-making process has a bevy of circumstantial context that pre that preluded everything to that point. And so just to say it's illegal or it's legal, it's not fair. And ultimately, I do believe just like a man and humans in general should have freedom of choice to live their life. Abortion is no different to me. So for me, the argument is you can't say that you should have freedom of choice because you're a male and you should be able to drink booze or carry a gun, but then you're also against abortion. Like the two don't add up. So I'm with you. And it's the, okay, you, you're going to make this woman have a child, but then you're not going to help her feed it, clothe yeah, it, exactly. medical expenses. Like, exactly. you know, for the people on the picket lines, shaming women getting abortions, I want to ask them, how many children have you adopted today? I think people in the picket lines are the lowest form of intelligence on the planet. No offense if you've ever picketed line, but for you to be on a picket line for an, an, an incident or an idea that you probably know very little about that you haven't taken the time to research or understand and and judge the people that you're picketing against by making a heinous, malicious, and evil judgment by saying you're better than that person by holding a sign and think that you're actually making a fucking impact other than making you seem like a malicious and evil soul is the lowest form of intelligence on the planet. And I stand by that. So forgive me if that offends anyone. Preach. Well, it's also a form of cult life. This is Westboro Baptist Church, you know, like that incredibly awful hate group that are protesting, you know, the funeral and saying God hates fags. Like, holy shit. Like, I am opposed to it. And whether it's that or the picketers, that's a form of cult life. And it's like they've outsourced their sense of belonging and good. Like, okay, this is where I go. If I pick it, then I get accepted. I mean, it's such fuckery. That's my argument for, you know, you might not up in a cult. Yeah, let's stop the fuckery. Deal with your shit. It's a lot. That's going to be the name of this podcast today. <laughs> stop the fuckery and talk to Brit. <laughs> I cannot. There are people here all over the city, and I. The, my first exposure to picketing in the most heinous form, and we're so off topic, but thank you for humoring me, was when I moved to Charlotte from San Diego, and. I, I drove by, there's Chick-fil-A everywhere here in the South. It's the first time I'd ever seen Chick-fil-A. We did not have Chick-fil-A growing up. And it's, it's really good, but I don't eat it because it's awful for you. But it's hard to resist sometimes. Anyhow, they were picketing. Um, they, there was a guy on a megaphone and they had pulled a giant tractor trailer up to the parking lot of the Chick-fil-A. And it was filled 
on the side of it, facing the street on one of the busiest roads in Charlotte with the most graphic, disgusting images of abortion, of aborted fetuses in all their myriad of status and, and, and liquids and blood. And, and, and anyone who drives by, like this is on the side of a tractor trailer. And then they had a minister or somebody on a, on a, on a loudspeaker yelling and screaming through it, judging anyone who drove by like just blatantly screaming about how how they were so anti-abortion. And I'm just thinking, they were, they were mostly men, by the way, which was really weird to me. And a few younger kids that they had out there, would had, which had obviously been forced there or brainwashed into it. And I just remember thinking, like, how is that even allowed to be even, how is that even physically allowable to have these people on the street with that? Like, it's just, it's just disturbing. And, but they had scriptures all around their, they were holding scripture signs as well. And I'm like, I don't believe in an organized religion to begin with. I do believe in spirituality and a higher, there is something higher than us. It's impossible to say that we all just evolved from a, from a protozoa. Like there, there, it's just, it's hard for me to believe that a single celled amoeba is my ancestor. So there has to be something bigger and better and badder than we are that have, that has to have created us. But if that person is an omnipotent, all knowing, all everything being that can create the splendor and the glory that we are as, as humans and the planet that we live on, there is no way in fucking hell that person would have a conditional relationship with your spirituality and how you're supposed to believe and conversely hate other people who don't agree with you. And well, that's- my biggest problem with all of the Christian-based like fuckery stuff is that I've read the Bible cover to cover. I was in a religious cult. Jesus said, "Don't be a dick." That's the most important thing. I'm paraphrasing, but above all, he said that 100. He said that. Dick. That's it. Yeah. Like, don't be a dick. Love each other, and the rest will sort of sort itself out. Like, that's it. So that was sort of where I came to the end of the culty mindset. I'm like, this seems pretty basic. Don't be a dick. Could you know? Believe what you want, do what you want, don't be a dick and try not to like fuck up with other people or yourself. Yeah. Like that's yeah. it. So somehow we made it very complicated and very ugly and very gross. But I'm with you, you know, the subjugation of women by forcing them into having babies that they don't. Now I've chosen to be child free by choice. And the thought of being forced to have a child and now being forced to take care of it with no help. And like, that's insane to me. Like that's insanity. You know, like what we call insanity, I'm anxious. Well, you should be anxious. You live in a fucked up world where a lot of weird shit is going on. You know, like anxiety makes sense in that context, but you know, yeah, there is, there is a lot of fuckery going on in the world. We do live in a fucked up world, but I do at the core believe that inherently humans are good. I think that kindness and love and self-awareness and personal responsibility will eventually prevail. I do think we're in a dark, a dark state right now, but I think there's a war going on and I don't know the outcome, but you know, it seems to me that goodness and kindness and love will always prevail. And I don't mean to sound like cliche, but it just seems to me like the idea of lightness and goodness feels better and it's lighter and it has to be stronger in some way, shape or form. So um, before I lose you, because I do really want to get to the one key piece that I asked that I was going to talk to you about, and you just said it a second ago, was anxiety. And you, and you use anxiety as like the check engine on your car light, which I think is a brilliant analogy. And when you do have anxiety with your car, like 
Some people choose not to address it. And what happens with your car, you eventually run it into the ground, right? So this check engine light, this anxiety creeping in over you, whether they're feelings of stress or you have an anxiety about coming on the podcast or whatever it is, you're saying anxiety is in fact a superpower because it enables you to empower yourself to do something about it by recognizing its source and understanding its triggers and how you can in fact deal with it. Yes. So I just, if you may, before you close and leave me for your day, talk a little bit about this anxiety piece because I was reading a statistic yesterday and these numbers are going to be a little bit off, but it's something like 6,000% increase in suicides. It's something like 60,000 or several tens of thousands increase in depression and uses of, of usage of drugs. And the amount of people who have overdosed and killed themselves on pharmaceutical drugs in the last two years alone is it's an exponentially three-digit percentage higher than it was prior to this nonsense of COVID hitting our, our realm. Anxiety is at the core of most of those things. My kids have suffered from it when they were in lockdown. How and what and why can we use anxiety as our superpower in this time of turbulence and anxiety that we're going through? So anytime, you know, M. Scott Peck, who's an author that I love, says that mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs. Mental health is a, com a commitment to what is true, no matter, I'm paraphrasing here, how fucked up, how ugly, how painful. And as a drug addict person, I can tell you that a lot of things that we experience serve the purpose of helping us avoid truth. It's like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. It's like, of course you're anxious. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, politically, everything is Ugh. absolute batshit what? And your anxiety actually makes sense. You know, people would come into my office every, you know, virtually every day. It's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have all this free time. Why am I not learning how to bake banana bread and learn Spanish? It's like, because there is a global threat that is out of our control. It's beyond our understanding. The people in charge of our well-being fuckery and it makes sense. And so rather than assuming that the problem is something broken inside of us, anxiety is a signal that points toward a problem. Now you may not always know what it is. Sometimes it's not as clear as that's the political situation, therefore fuckery. But if you can start with the assumption that anxiety is trying to get your attention and it needs to be understood, not like suppressed or denied or avoided. I mean, I don't like feeling anxious either. It's an awful feeling. But, you know, someone would come into my office with, I have an anxiety disorder. It's like, no, you don't. You're in a bad marriage. You hate your job. Your kid is acting out. Your mother just died. It's like the things that we think make us broken are almost always reasonable responses if you, if you drill down far enough into our environment and what's actually happening. So like, let's work with it instead of trying to squish our, our humanity down. Like, yeah, you're sad. That makes sense. Yeah, you're angry. That makes sense. You're, you're afraid. That makes sense. So let's, let's deal with it. So what are some ways before you go that right off the cuff without seeing an, a, a therapist or a specialist <laughs> that we can recognize what's going on? Anxiety we'll use as the case note here. What is it we can do and to, to sort of make tweaks and adjustments so we can handle it a little bit better. So I have like, this is not an easy three-step process, but here are three steps because most people are like, okay, give me tools. Step one, tell yourself, this makes sense in context. Fuck if I know what the context is, but I'm not crazy because that's not a thing. This makes sense somewhere. I am not a crazy person. Step two, what are 10 options that I have available to me? They can be big, small, it doesn't matter. What are 10 viable options that are available to me right now to deal with feeling safer or feeling less shitty or feeling less whatever the thing is I don't want to feel. Okay, step three of those 10 choices, pick one, pick an easy one and do it. 
And, that and that's the compound effect by taking the small steps at it instead of yeah. trying to tackle it all at once. Exactly. And don't minimize the small steps. Well, that doesn't count. Yes, it does. Step one, you're not crazy. Step two, make a list of choices. Step three, do something. Stuck becomes not stuck the second we make a choice in any direction of any magnitude. So like do something, do anything, and we'll work from there. That's great. Thank you for this. Yeah. This has been a brilliant conversation. I know that we were uh, at the end of our time. Um, any closing thoughts you'd like to have? How can people find you? Uh, I spend too much time on Instagram at Britt Frank. Britt has two T's. Or um, my website is scienceofstuck.com. You had a couple of letters after um, your name of your company is called The Greenhouse, but I forget whether it was K&S. What are the K? Is that what is KC, the... Kansas City. I'm based out of Kansas ah, City. So the greenhouse, KC. Why the greenhouse? Because people are like plants. Put them in the right soil, give them the right shit, and they grow. I just had the same conversation with Lisa the other day. Um, it, it centers around relationships and, and, you know, like we're in relationship and whatnot. And we have struggles like other people do. And she's probably gonna get mad at me for talking about this. But I'm like, relationships are no different than anything else in our life, or whether it's our job or our plants that we grow or the food that we cook or anything that we have. Like it, it sometimes works really, really well. And sometimes there's problems and we have to figure out what the problems are so that we can solve the problems. But the point of it for me, and this is not pertaining to Lisa and I, but just in general, like if you're having problems, but it's something you really enjoy, get your check engine light is turning on to correct and figure out what the problem is and work on solving it. It's not just going to fix itself. Like if there's a recurring theme that keeps popping up, it's generally telling us we have a fucking lesson that needs to be learned here that we're not addressing. Do we give a shit enough about to fix it or do we not? And if we don't give a shit, that's a whole different conversation. But if we do give a shit, let's figure out what it is we can do to solve the problem. Let's put some work into it. Amen. It, seems pretty, it, makes, it makes perfect sense to me, right? Yeah, it's like a okay. cavity. You can ignore a cavity all you want. Eventually, you're going to have a root canal, and that's yeah. going to suck. So and it just becomes septic after that. So exactly, and then you die. I, I know you're going to be listening to this. I'm not saying anything poorly, but Britt, she's a therapist. She just agreed with me. <laughs> all right, all right. You're going to get mad at me. All right. <laughs> Um, I really appreciated this conversation. It was fun. It was good to get to know you and learn a little bit about you and share your insights with the world. Thank you so much. And thank you for your work. And thanks for filling my social tank for the day. I love it. Thank you for filling mine. So this was Britt Frank. She's a trauma therapist. You can find her at on Instagram, which is my favorite place in Sandbox to play, which is just Britt Frank. That's Britt with two T's. And you can find her on her website at thescienceofstuck.com. And if there's anything else that you need to figure out that you're struggling with and you have a check engine light clicking on in your life and it's centered around anxiety or stress or some trauma that you're dealing with, maybe send her an email. Maybe she might have some information. Or can I just plug you for a minute? Please. Read your book, The Science of Stuff. It is an easy to read, actually quite funny. And there's a lot of takeaways in this book. And I really appreciate you sharing it with me. I enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Always. Have a fantastic day.